Graham Goodwin. It is time for us to do the weekend sports cars, and we're doing it on a Friday. And tomorrow's 12 hours of Sebring, and we had hoped to do this a couple days ago. But, you know, life intervenes. Nonetheless, we at least know who's starting on pole, uh, who's been disqualified. We know a variety of interesting things so far who crashed uh, in preparation for the 12 hours of Sebring. Uh, where should we get going here first in our four plus categories that we work from all brought to us by Cooper tires, the justice brothers, torontomotorsports.com and our pets. Uh, indeed our pets. Uh, hello everybody, uh, from the UK. And we're going to get to IMSA for the first one this week. Uh, and why wouldn't we? Because there is track action, uh, that's been underway until remarkably recently, uh, before we, uh, push the go button on this, uh, week's show MP, which generally means that I start flinging stuff towards you. And we're going to kick off with a few requests and points around Sebring predictions, uh, first one coming from Brian Terpstra says he'd like to ensure you remember his request for predictions MP. We, and I think he means, I'm hoping he means the kind of collective listeners rather than speaking <sighs> himself in the royal we, um, need prototype predictions from each of you. Well, <sighs> well, <laughs> should we also <laughs> roll in the second item here? Uh, second item is from. Uh, Ewan, our, our mate SRA Smoking Puppy 841, how many MP3s are going to finish the 12 hours of Sebring? <laughs> um, I think one win overall. I love it. Well, yes, and for those uh, who... By the way, we'll push in for Rishi uh, Dishpanda, who also says um, who your overall and class winner picks for this oh weekend. Oh, my gosh, here what we do go. You make, <laughs> what do you make of the 48 early uh, team's new crew hand picks by Knaus? Are they all AXR sports car people or Hendrik NASCAR folks as well? I think it's the latter, from what I understand. Um, some picks. Um, <laughs> well, you know, the 48's not at the best of the starts the uh, weekend, has it? Uh, they're still picking bits of the car out the wall as we press the big red button that uh, records the weekend sports cars. But what's say you, Marshall Pruitt? What are you seeing from uh, the perambulations of the prototype and GT fields so far this weekend at uh, Seabrook International Raceway? Perambulations of prototype predictions. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. What are we doing to our... Our listeners, Goodwin, I tell you. Well, let's see. Uh, first of all, the second item here, uh, asking for my thoughts on how many cars are going to finish an LMP3. That's a great callback to my epic failure of saying zero would complete the 24 hours of Daytona, and I was uh, just magically wrong on that one. So I love the snarkiness of that question. Uh, I would say most of the LMP3s are going to finish based on if you could do 24, I'm guessing you can do 12. So, yeah, I'm not going to go ahead and uh, extend body parts to then step on them again based on that failed prediction. So I think we're okay in that department. I have a feeling, and this is very boring, but I do have a feeling the top two qualifiers in DPI are going to be the top two vying for the win. Pippo Durrani putting mm-hmm. the Action Express, the 31 wheel and engineering Cadillac DPI VR on pole. Ricky Taylor, a tenth of a second behind in the Rolex 24 winning Wayne Taylor Acura. I do think it's going to be down to these two. Only question, only thought and hope during those 12 hours, Graham, will we see Pippo Durrani come upon 
Juan Pablo Montoya in the Myershank Racing Acura and decide to, uh, hey, uh, I've studied. I've done some work. I think I can improve upon last year's uh, bulldozer impression. So assuming young Mr. Durrani can keep his red mist in check this year. Oh, boy. That 31 uh, Action Express Cadillac, it's just really hard to count out at Sebring. And also the Taylor team, they're pretty darn good uh, in anything. So I think those two, I think the spoiler for sure Mm -hmm. would be the Chip Ganassi Racing Cadillac. They were in the hunt, certainly in the hunt for a top two, if not an overall win at Daytona. We'll see if they can break through and get a win in only their second race using the Cadillac. But yeah, between the 31 and the 10 overall, P2, I'm just, I am dumb, but I don't think I'm dumb enough to try and predict a winner. We know the Pier 1 Matheson team seems to be the one that gets to the finish more often or cleaner than most. Here Motorsport, obviously, having a great start to the year there. Heck, Win Motorsport on pole with their uh, team owner slash driver, Stephen Thomas, who, I mean, it feels like the guy just started driving yesterday. So I, I'm not confident in saying one over the other uh, or picking a particular class winner in P2 just because it's the class that kind of sort of defies that more often than not. GTLM, we have... Corvette 1-2, Garcia on pole, Tommy Milner P2, BMWs 3 and 4 in the fifth and final, that being the WeatherTech Racing Porsche. They were super quick leading up to, prior to qualifying. Pros in the car, Cooper McNeil, the one non-pro in the class, obviously was not able to uh, measure up against the pros in qualifying. But, yeah, what will be interesting to see here, and I would be very surprised if we don't have a Corvette victory, Graham, is strategery on the Proton Porsche WeatherTech thing. Depending Mm -hmm. on how much drive time Cooper is plugged in for, uh, knowing that the car has certainly shown front-running pace in the hands of the pros in that vehicle, uh, do you want to go for a Class GTLM win by minimizing Cooper? That, to me, is going to be something interesting to chart at least in the past, I don't recall Cooper ever signing on for a, yes, minimize me for victory. Uh, that mm-hmm. doesn't seem to jive with his mindset. So potential is there. Will they actually make the strategic changes needed to vie against all pro lineups in GTLM? That's the question there. LMP3, I have no idea. Again, with one race to go off of, I don't know how we say, oh, that's going to be the clear winner. We know that the 74, the Riley uh, run entry, had a pretty darn good time at Daytona. But nonetheless, uh, there's a lot of cars that showed a lot of potential. I don't know. Is, does, are there any that stand out to you? As maybe? There's, there's one. There's one, and it is the one that's had the most remarkable um well, staccato kind of um uh, route into the sebring 12 hours uh, were it a Ligier, i'd be saying i'd say it's a surefire favorite at this point but it's duquesne and the duquesne has had its problems with um you know uh, with reliability and particularly over the bumps that might be an issue here that's the number seven the 47 motorsports car which you know <sighs> 
was never supposed to be in the race, uh, came out from memory. Please correct me if I'm wrong here. This was supposed to be a second entry from Performance Tech, but the car wasn't ready for Jim Norman. So then something came together with 47 Motorsports with 2019 IMSA Prototype Challenge uh, champion um, plus Jim Norman and... Austin McCusker. Austin McCusker. Sorry, I I didn't say the name. Jim Norman and Oliver Askew, correct? And then Jim pulled out, I believe, yesterday to be replaced by Stephen McAleer. So Stephen McAleer plus Oliver Askew plus uh, Austin McCusker, that's a pretty good lineup. Uh, And if the car can stay reliable, I think they've got the pace through that driver lineup to win it on pace. Um, but are we going to be dealing with a class that can win it on pace around Sebring? And you know, as we've said many, many times before, 12 hours around Sebring International Raceway is easily worth 24 around anywhere else. Um, and it's the it's the bumpy bits that can really kind of catch out these cars if you've got any part of them that is liable to kind of breakage. And the thing about LMP3 cars is they're built for cost capness and uh, lightness and that that's my concern about p3 there we go uh and then gtd well all i can tell you is i'm expecting a refund because Mm -hmm. i saw that i could sign up for 4.99 for the rest of the weekend at sebring with an awesome mobile wi-fi hotspot um fantastic had to pay literally the fastest wi-fi in the world it is and weird felt a little strange being rerouted redirected to pay through a german portal um but yes uh and then to italy and back to america but yes uh for those who weren't aware the air quote pole winning grt redundant grass racing team lamborghini no longer on pole position after himsa found a mobile wi-fi hotspot installed in the car which per the rules is not allowed um i yeah so with all that i'm not we just say not smart car oh there we go um yes it only works with myspace though so that's the other uh, slight <laughs> limitation there um yeah nonetheless we have a uh, pretty interesting situation here where things did not exactly pan out the way that they had hoped obviously right motorsports we're going to look at i don't know why i feel right uh right about right but yeah is that maybe uh, the place we go does lexus get a bit of uh Uncartoon anvil, cartoon anvil uh, removal after what happened last year, which just scuppered their title chances. The final round, I don't know why, but somewhere between a Lexus or a right Porsche, I feel like there might be something pretty awesome there. And then the, what would you say, Graham? The the spoiler might be the Sun Energy One Mercedes run by our pals. Uh, those fine, fine Gr- folks at Gradient Gradient Motors, Gradient Racing. I don't know what it means, but um, Radiant. Yeah. <laughs> G G G Radiant Drive. Uh, Roman Rusinov is involved somehow. I'm confused. Anyways, um, that might be. Uh, do we get the old luck of the Irish 
courtesy of their super green one-off livery. I don't know, but that stands out as a keep your eye on that one. Something cool might happen. So those are my general predictions. As usual, I apologize to all the teams and drivers listed (laughs) as my thoughts for potential winners because as we have come to learn over the years, Graham, if I say you're going to win or have a good time, cartoon anvils do indeed start to fall. So blame, hashtag blame Pruitt. Right, let's move on to um, the other major uh, points of discussion. Well, I say discussion, questioning um, amongst our, our friends that have sent in questions for the IMSA area. That is to do with GTD Pro. And we've got uh, four questions here. Andre Good, uh, a bit of an outlier here. It says, do you see IMSA allowing a hybrid option in GTD Pro in the next couple of years? I think I'd say immediately no. Uh, what say you, Marshall Pruitt? No. The only caveat, and it's a very IMSA thing, which is different, I would say, than the FIWC. That's why I mention it uh, as a caveat. IMSA is very much about polling its paddock and its manufacturers compared to we in our corporate office have come to a decision of what we think things should be, how things should be done, whatever it is, and you all must comply. Uh, they tend to do things a little bit different, especially since John Doonan took over as president. So that's why I just throw in here that if you were to hear from manufacturers, hey, we've got a hybrid thing we might want to incorporate into our GT racing, and there's enough of that, even if the ACO, WC, FI in general say, no, we're not going to allow that in GT3 competition, could I see IMSA considering this in GTD Pro specifically where manufacturers play? I could. Do I think that would happen mm-hmm. quickly? No, but I know it's a thing. I mean, think about the Acura NSX GT3, or NSX, I should say, Graham. That is a hybrid vehicle. And it is. in order for it to comply to current GT3 regs, Acura has to yank that uh, kinetic energy recovery system out of the vehicle. Uh, so it's not as if hybrid-ish type things don't currently exist in the road side, and I think we could see more of that coming. But again, I, like you, do not foresee the FIA giving the thumbs up to hybrid GT3 regulations anytime soon. IMSA, though, if enough ask, I think might wander down that path, uh, provided there is a consensus agreement among manufacturers. Uh, I'll add just this tiny bit, which is I think the time is here for that to be openly discussed. Um, You know, we've got this period of time with new GT3 regulations coming in in 2022 uh, for the cars and then obviously GTD Pro coming in the same year. Now is, I think, the time to have that open discussion about electrification and GT rather than the prototype field, just so that there is openness about whether or not there's going to be a roadmap towards that but uh, no certainly not in the next couple of years i, I don't see that let's move on a bit uh andrew baxter um wants wants to kiss john doonan can i kiss john doonan for wanting to keep gtd pro the same pace as gtd doesn't the possibility for confidential tires kind of ruin that idea this comes from peace i think you must take responsibility for Marshall Pruitt. It is you that's got Andrew back to the point where he wants to kiss John Doonan. Why would I take blame for that? Isn't that a beautiful thing? 
Isn't it's that a very just thing. love and humanity being demonstrated here? So yep. I don't take blame. I take pride. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is in response to an interview with Mr. Dunan that went up a few days ago on racer.com regarding the direction of GTD Pro. This is something we have pontificated upon with minimal accuracy or knowledge on the show uh, <laughs> since it was announced. No change there. Yeah. The, the overarching item here is, or has been, what's Simpsa going to do? What's the approach going to be? Uh, will it be massively changing one or the other? Meaning GTD, Pro-Am, GTD Pro, Full Pro, are you going to speed up one, slow down the other? What are you going to do? Uh, between these two classes to make them coexist, is there a need to make any changes, technical changes, BOP changes, uh, to make these classes coexist? And the short answer from Dunan was no. We're going to, by and large, rely upon the full pro lineups and GTD pro to create the lap time separation from GTD. And, of course, there will be times where you have a pro driver, name your favorite badass that's in GTD right now, an Earl Bamber or, or, or similar, where Earl's going to be in his Porsche 911 GT3R, potentially going up against someone else in a, a factory or factory-affiliated uh, GTD Pro 911 GT3R, and there will be zero separation in lap time. Maybe you'll have some of the GTD uh, drivers, the pros in the... Pro-Am GTD class faster than those in some of the GTD Pro cars. Who knows? But that's meant to be the number one difference that would, in theory, create separation and lap time over the course of a race to have the GTD Pro cars finishing ahead of the GTD cars. One item, don't have an update on, don't know if or when we will, but I know that there were discussions over or during this week, maybe they've yet to take place with Michelin on the topic of what kind of tires for GTD Pro. Would it be a continuation of GTE Pro slash GTLM practices, Graham, with Michelin? Confidential tires, ones that are developed and really honed for each model with multiple compounds available to suit the conditions. Would it be the GTD route of, you know, in theory, one size fits all of, hey, it's a spec tire, it's the same compound, and y'all figure it out. So that's the only thing that could be different between the two classes that I know of right now, but it was a question that, again, we're hoping to get answered. That may not happen. And that's a little thing to just close on, Graham, that I'm curious about. Changes in terms of we're doing something additive that's different. Uh, Those things tend to be accepted a little bit easier than we're going to make a change and take away something you've long been accustomed to and really, really like, that being the confidential Michelin tires. If IMSA were to say factory GTLM teams moving up to GTD Pro or anyone new coming into GTD Pro, whatever it is, you are going to have to forfeit the possibility of having confidential tires. Those are going away just like GTLM. Opting into this new class, you're going to have to use this 
non-custom tire. That's something I wonder, Graham, how the manufacturers would react to. Well, that, uh, well, giving that up. Actually talk, Go ahead. That talks directly to the next question we've got, actually, which is Kevin Perez Federico says, uh, AMP, do you want GT Pro to have more freedom than current GT3 spec? A minimum open tire so the other manufacturers like Falcon or Yokohama or Goodyear want to come to GT Pro. What's the consensus from manufacturers? Do they care for the spec tire or do they want open options to be available to tailor to their GT3 platform? It's a, it's a fair question, isn't it? Yeah. A uh, question that we'll have to find out uh, answers to. I don't, there's not going to be an opening of anything. Uh, I don't foresee that uh, really being the case uh, of other brands coming in. I mean, I wouldn't be against it for sure. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if there's anything actively prohibiting it, but I just wonder if in this move to GTD Pro, I think in the name of costs, I won't be surprised if there's a decision to go with the existing GTD tires and say, well, uh, these are what you'll be using. Um, we'll have to see. Again, I don't, I don't have any real read as to whether that will or won't happen, but I won't be a surprise, or I won't be surprised if IMSA just says, look, as Dunan mentioned in uh, our interview, we're erring on the side of simplicity with this new class. So what would be most simple? Hey, we're going to align basically everything with GTD. The only thing that changes is the type of teams competing. We're allowing full factories and we're allowing all pro lineups. Everything else from a vehicular standpoint, 100% the same. Okay. Uh, final question on GTD Pro for now, at least, comes from Danny L. Summers Gill, okay, who says, with Corvette Racing having confirmed their intentions to race at Le Mans and WC rounds in the future, will this ensure GTE Pro continues to at least 2022? Uh, it's more a WC question. With the GT3 required in GTD Pro, will Corvette build new GT3 cars for IMSA or a conversion kit for the existing existing C8Rs? Well, we know the answer now to the the latter one, that they can't do that for 22. I, I think it's a highly interesting question, uh, Daniel, to do with the intention from WEC. Uh, we've got, obviously, at this stage, both Porsche and uh Ferrari, both uh, committed to the championship, the WC championship full season for this season, 2021, and both have committed to the new converged top class for 2023. That does leave a gap. Can we assume they will continue through into 2022 um, to bridge that gap? I don't think we can make that assumption, but I think there'll be a reasonable bet that we'll see both those manufacturers represented in the WEC, and that's probably their only option. Uh, it was certainly good news to see Corvette saying that they intend uh, to have those cars available, and that was sort of telegraphing, wasn't it, MP? What we now know, which is that they're not, well, they either don't have the opportunity or they're not taking the option um, to rebuild cars in time for the start of gtd pro and now in discussions it would appear with imsa about what the option for 2022 might be are they going to effectively be able to grandfather their gtlm cars into that class and does that mp open up a whole can of worms 
Yeah, you pointed me to some quotes from uh, Laura Wontrop Clauser, who's the head of uh, GM Sports Car Pro, Sports Car Racing Road Racing uh, content. Um, yeah, wow, that is very different. Uh, with Laura saying we do not intend to build GT3 versions or, or modify and switch back and forth between GTLM and GT three specs based on going and playing in WEC or, or in IMSA and GTD pro uh, we'd only heard and from solid sources that they oh, were yeah. planning to retrofit the current cars, uh, go to GT three, be able to do that. And then uh, remove all the GT three bits to go back to GTLM for any of their, uh, WEC activities and so on. And per Laura's comments, they apparently have decided now decided against that. And here's, I don't have further details on it. I'll obviously be uh, pursuing that here, but with her statement that they're fairly hard line in the sand, as I read it being, we will, modify our GTLM cars to fit in GTD Pro compared to uh, convert and then homologate and so on and so forth to be 100% GT3 specification. Huh. This, I would say, Graham, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Mm -hmm. This, I think, poses one of the biggest challenges to IMSA that I can recall in recent years. That being, what is the most popular team in IMSA? Period. Corvette Racing. Uh, what is the the team that no one could imagine uh, IMSA existing without? That would be Corvette Racing. And I'm not saying there aren't plenty of other favorites, but this is truly the biggest draw. They're an institution unto themselves etc etc when you have a manufacturer now telling the series hey we'll we'll turn up but not under the rules that you want under what we want to do the concern to me is well so does bmw then say oh cool yeah i know that we have gt3 cars we could use but hey Maybe it'd just be cheaper to make some modifications to the vehicles we currently have running in GTLM and just continue doing those. Um, hey, Porsche, you know, or in this case, the Proton-led privateer entry. Hey, yeah, I know we could probably do a 911 GT3R, but hey, uh, yeah, we just want to modify what we have a little bit. That strikes me as, a, a as you mentioned, a true can of worms being opened. Do you allow Corvette to do that and then risk the other manufacturer saying, well, okay, then us too. We don't want to have to adhere to the rules if they don't. Uh, you also then have the, well, what's in the greater good, right? Of course, having Corvette there is, that is the greater good. But do you, from the outset, give them a waiver to be different? Um you know, saying that there isn't enough time to convert the car to GT3. 
We're in the I, middle I, of March. I, We're not in the yeah. middle of September. Um, I this just stands stands out to me as a real test uh, for IMSA yeah. as to whether they are looking at the the needs of all or the needs of the individual. Well, I, I get, I'm going to add two talking points into this question, MP. First is about the GT side of things, because the same has happened twice for a different manufacturer, but in reverse, that we've had GT3 cars converted to a sort of GTLM specification by BMW twice uh, to run in GTLM. Yeah. So it's happened in the other direction. So there is... If not direct precedent, there is sort of precedent for this. Okay, it's not quite the same. I absolutely accept that. So that's number one. The second thing is, Laura is a very recent appointee to that post. And uh, the initial statements that we saw uh, on her appointment were to talk, talking through the strategy of what was going to happen with the brands and the emerging opportunities and challenges of the classes that were coming out. We know as well in the current economic uh, situation that it is going to be tough to get one, let alone multiple motorsport programs over the line. Is this perhaps the strategy that actually what they're trying to do is to um, prioritize more than one championship, uh, more than one new program, that being GT3 and LMDH? over a slightly more extended period of time and that the cost of actually getting, I would hope, an LMDH program over the line in time for 2023 might be that they have to delay the design and engineering work on the GT3 for a future year. Could that be what's behind this? I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not portraying, and again, just to be clear, I'm not trying to portray Corvette as doing sure. anything bad or wrong. No, no, no. Uh, no. I mean, you always look to try and push and have the rules comply to whatever you want them to be. I mean, that's part of the game. But having a vehicle that is 100% GT3 mm -hmm. compliant and homologated by the end of the year in the middle of a racing season while in the midst of a racing season, I understand, not easy. Uh, a, a significant challenge. I would just say that, to your point, we have seen some special things happen in the past for cars to be able to comply to a different set of regulations than they were originally built. Not making the effort to go as far as GT3 spec as you can with a vehicle, I would certainly suggest that there is time for that. Uh, mm -hmm. to say, well, if we can't have it 100% signed off uh, by the ACO before the start of next season, we're just not going to go down that path at all. Again, we don't know exactly how far they're wa wanting to go with modifying their GTLM cars. We don't know what IMSA has or hasn't said in terms of, yeah, we agree, no, we don't agree, or here's a compromise. Again, these are all things to be determined. Um, yeah. But it just, the number th one thing that stands out, hey, the GTLM class is, is no longer sustainable. We all agree that with that. IMSA has made the, I think, somewhat smart decision to say, cool, we're going to go to what is working. GT3 allow a pro level. And all of you, barring one, have cars that are GT3 compliant. 
We announced this in January of 2020, 2021. Um, I would think some fairly substantial work to get Corvette C8Rs pretty darn close to full GT3 spec before the start of the 2022 season could indeed happen. The idea of starting a new class with one outlier, with one exception uh, in it, it just tickles all the all the things about sports car racing that you know I hate the most of like mm-hmm. okay yes yeah they're all now GT3 GT3 cars except four and okay <laughs> and here's another exception and you know oh, come on yeah. man so again just, uh, that's just the thing that uh, I'm not exactly loving okay fair enough let's move forward uh, we're at Sebring this weekend well you're not and I'm not but people are and cars are and as is always the case with Sebring, as Jimmy Johnson found out just a few minutes ago, um, the bumps tend to come up. And we've got a couple of questions here, one from Dan Rice, one from Tim Glass. Uh, Dan says, you talked recently about the endurance disappearing from endurance racing with all the gains in reliability and testing. Given the chatter about repaving Sebring, is it possible? Sebring is the last bastion of endurance racing, given the rough surface that rattled the car like a few other places. Whilst Tim says... At some point, they'll need to either repave or regrind in smooth sunset bend. How far out is that? Are the discussions about that the IMSA paddock? I'll add this just before you have a crack at it. Um, I like Sebring. I like the challenge. I like the bumps. But I will say sunset looks hairier than it's ever been. Um, and I'd say at times borderline dangerous. Hmm. Uh, I've heard nothing about plans to pave or otherwise. I think they would begrudgingly do so. I do love the point that everything degrades over time. Obviously, we've been in a pretty high state of degradation uh, at many places of the Sebring track circuit. Uh, There will, I'm sure, come a point where someone says, okay, really, this is as as far as we can go, we've got to make some sort of change. That I would love to see how that would be approached. And I would imagine Sebring slash IMSA would engage Michelin and provided they're still the main partner. And who knows who else to try and look at how do we fix some of the surface problems without doing a complete repave and taking what we know as the hashtag respect the bumps aspect away from the circuit so an actual modernization or a a resto mod hey yeah it's now we're we're breaking cars tearing up floors and you name it can't do that anymore how do we address this do we grind down some areas uh, that have risen up too high do we fill in some of the potholes that are now too deep that then cause the cars to leap up and you know crash back down and do damage? How do we do this? But I have to imagine that would be the mindset taken, knowing it's one of the points of reverie. And not every driver loves the abuse that they take as a result of the track surface, but I, it's just part of the character that you don't I don't want to see taken away nor do I think Sebring would look to actually do that 
I tend to agree. Um, I think, but as you say, it's that de- degradation over time, and are we dealing with the same challenge and same character that we were three, five, seven years ago? And I think the answer is maybe we're not. Uh, some of the kind of behaviour of the cars over the bumps in the last couple of years has seemed to be pretty extreme. Let's move on, though. Um, and... Ivan Pandev says, since the LMDH hybrid unit is spec, is there any room at all for OEMs to innovate their own hybrid technologies? I presume he means within LMDH. Do they even want to innovate, or do they just want the optics of racing hybrid cars? Optics! I mean, this is a marketing exercise, for sure, Mm -hmm. Ivan. This is not exploration, third-generation hybrids will be developed in IMSA. I say the same thing about IndyCar. They have a spec system coming. It's going to add some power. It's going to definitely add some weight. But more than anything, this is a ticking of boxes in terms of modern hybrid relevance, bringing a tiny amount of electrification on the IMSA side, 40 horsepower to a 680 horsepower overall uh, hybrid package, right? It's just, it's a small percent with a fairly high weight penalty. But this is, this is something that even though Ivan and Graham, uh, we can't look at and say, ah, technology run amok and amazing and cetera and so on. We're seeing manufacturers respond to it, like seriously respond to, all right, cool. You're going down this route. This is easy slash easier for us to sell uh, to our marketing departments and our boards of directors and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I think it's just more in the, this is the thing that everybody is uh, agreeing is the right move for where the industry is at in terms of signing off on racing programs, not necessarily aligning with where the automotive industry is in terms of vehicle products today and for the next three, four, five years, however long we have these systems in place. So, yeah, this is a key that's opened the door, Ivan, to manufacturers, more manufacturers Mm -hmm. saying, yep, we'll go do that, not something that has IMSA positioning themselves as being at the forefront of any new technology by any means. I think that's that's completely correct. And the other point, Ivan, here is, no, they can't amend those uh, systems anyway. The uh, manufacturers that might want to do that can opt uh, not to race with IMSA and race instead with the WEC, with the Le Mans hypercar regulations, LMH uh, regulations. And so far, we have Toyota, we have Blickenhaus, we have Peugeot to come and Ferrari to come that have opted to do that. And remains to be seen yet whether or not those cars will be accepted by IMSA at any point in the future. Runs neatly into the next question, which comes from Geronimo Lazos, who says he's read so many things about what can and can't be done to an LMD Husky. He's confused what exactly are the permitted modifications can be done. He's guessing it's not just the engine and some brand like aesthetics is it uh, by the way uh, it says that we've got an awesome poster i take it this is the one with the pets on uh, sorry to tell you but the pets look better than both of you here uh, not difficult really I, I, I will readily admit i don't yeah 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 I'm just not, a, a little uh, little uh, note here send us a photo of you and then we'll be the judge okay you want to take shots at us geronimo all right pal but hey you know a little skin in the game on your end too 
We'll, uh, oh, we'll, we'll see who does or doesn't look good, pal. Just having fun here, but <laughs> um, hey, send it in. We'll, uh, we'll judge you. I'll, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll kick off really quickly with this is the hybrid system is spec and you cannot mess with that. You have free choice of engine, but within the performance envelope. Um, so you can have what you like, uh, in the back of those, those cars. And yes, some brand, uh, awareness, if you like on the bodywork, but again, the aerodynamic package again has to sit within a performance window. Uh, but beyond that, there's all sorts of, you know, race car, race team trickery that can be done in terms of the setup of the car. Of course there is, uh, in exactly the same ways you can with the DPIs at the moment, the LMP2s at the moment for that matter, uh, about which there is a high degree of specness. Uh, what else have you got to say on that front, MP? Yeah. Uh, just think of the current DPI and all that's been allowed there with the you can pick your own engine within a certain size and whatnot. There's a range there that hasn't really changed so much. Uh, would say that a V10 is really, you know, V8 and below are really about the size options that fit for uh, LMDH. But really, truly, it's not much different, Geronimo, than what we have with DPI manufacturers can build full brand new custom engines or use production based uh, they can go small they can go fairly large displacement size and cylinder count body work custom as well two biggest things that jump out just to close here we hear without great definition yet at least publicly I'm not saying the manufacturers haven't been informed i just know that on the media side and outwardly, we haven't been informed. We've been told that there's going to be more latitude for greater customization and manufacturer DNA in the look of the cars. Mm -hmm. Have that ability right now. Few, we would say, truly jump out as a, oh, that does have a real look similar to its one of its road cars, but we're told that there will be more allowance in that area, Geronimo. Just need to find out how much and how. And then on the uh, addition of the kinetic energy recovery system. That's really about the only two significant changes. Ooh, I, I think you're, you're being a bit harsh there, particularly to Acura. Um, I, I'm a big fan of their new SUV, the Acura 07 Gibson. Um, and, and for me, I think that that's, that's, it's just a cheap shot from you there. Holy MP, more shot. It's the shots fired episode. Of course, I would never tell you as the official selector of categories when we should move on, but I would suggest we should change categories. Let's change categories. What? <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. Oh, I Let's love that go idea. For it. Let's go to Weckathlum's Elms and Echo, where uh, we're down to a, a slightly more sensible number of questions this week after an absolute tsunami over the last few weeks. And, um, you know, we've just had today the publication of the entry list for the WEC season opener. Uh, 37 cars we'll have for the Spa uh season opener obviously replacing the Portimao race that's been put back later um with the changes in the calendar still covid inflicted i'm afraid and still more of that to come i'm afraid in mainland europe in particular europe in particular where things are not good still um but uh, 37 cars that's the full 
WEC full season entry list, including at the moment the two Glickenhouses. So a few kind of pointers that maybe there might be some homologation issues to come for the 007. Uh, but uh, in addition, the Corvette that we'd already heard about uh, with the first time pairing of Ollie Gavin and Antonio Garcia in the single C8R and uh, three additional LMP2 cars coming. Both of the G-Drive Auris cars will be there and PR1 Mattison will be making a very welcome uh, first appearance in Europe ahead of their appearance at the Le Mans 24 Hours uh, later in the summer. So uh, over to you, MP, for what we've got for kind of my bailiwick. Oh, I thought you were going to just spend the whole episode reading all the questions to me <laughs> and you. So uh, we're going to go to Sean Crockett says, now all the excitement of Ferrari doing it. Lamar hypercars down, died down a little bit. Do you see any other manufacturers taking up this more expensive option or will most slash all the ones uh, to still make announcements go the LMDH route? Um, it's a really good question. Uh, I think the answer is there are still prospects for, uh, other LMH uh, and I think there's two potential areas that might come from one is if you like the cheaper route the you know high powered big uh, banger engine in the back of something that is sort of more road car based uh, and I think there's one or two places where that might still come from I think that's looking less likely now there are one or two candidates that I think we should be looking towards that might be making the decision between LMH and LMDH the one I'm particularly thinking of here is Renault and Alpine I I am still expecting that they will find the prospect of coming uh, to Le Mans for an overall win uh, pretty bewitching We've got the uh, Alpine A480, the uh, grandfathered rebellion uh, in the WEC this year. I think that's a big tester for the brand to see what kind of return on investment. And there's not a lot of Renault investment in that program uh, they get for that program. But Renault, I think, are a distinct possibility. uh, And for a couple of reasons. One is they've been very active in electrification. Uh, Battery technology is... Uh, it's pretty good. They've got a uh, good old good range of electrified road cars uh, options, and they wouldn't take kindly, I don't think, to be seen to be being more spec alongside their bitter rivals in the marketplace, Peugeot's uh, cutting-edge um, powertrain technology. So I think of all the majors that are still out there, and we're waiting to find out, Renault are the ones that are most likely to be up to something the other part of this um is just a bit of a snippet uh, and it came from two briefings both came from very good sources from orica uh and the first uh, which was uh, i was not alone in the huddle around a table in the cafeteria we mentioned actually in last week's show i think it was or maybe the week before at uh, the rolex 24 uh, where we were told by Hugh Deshonak uh, that uh, Orica were ceasing their activities in development and evaluation of hypercar, a Le Mans hypercar, because they had um, multiple customers on the line, it would seem, for LMDH. That then changed, and what was then made clear to us is that they were again working on concept work and evaluation of hypercar. The question, 
MP, I guess, that comes out of this is we know what we think we know about uh, the uh, the areas of LMDH, the uh, the brands in LMDH that are currently closer to revealing their plans. And we only know one of them, and that's Acura, that is most likely to be working with Orica. So the question is, who else are Orica working with? And again, my guess, and it is an absolute guess, is I think something's going on with Alpine uh, behind closed doors at Orica, and I wouldn't be remotely surprised if that came out to be an LMH prototype for 2023. And if it is, and that is the, um, the the next big brand that actually comes out of the woodwork, then I think we've got something truly, truly special coming together for that race. Indeed. I also need to add on the topic of differences, the words, the letters that assemble the name Renault, at least in our mm-hmm. household, uh, the entire time my father alive, was never pronounced Renault. It's pronounced Renault. And Renault. I would say that's actually was a fairly common pronunciation here in good old America. So, you know, I love what we do using letters of an English language <laughs> put together in I, France I, 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 and regurgitated in a former colony. <laughs> I also love the Peugeot. fact that, well, Peugeot, for example, I love, uh, and I mean, I think you've only done it to me once or twice. Hindoff used to do it all the time used to uh, call me out for mispronouncing Peugeot. And then I would hear his pronunciation of it. And then I would hear, I don't know, my friend Sebastian Bourdais or someone else pronounce Peugeot. And a French person's pronunciation of Peugeot is certainly different than an English person's pronunciation of Peugeot, which I thought was a little bit cute to then have the Englishman tell me I'm pronouncing a French word wrong while he is pronouncing it wrong as well. No, 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 no. There's, there's two things to say. Okay, hilariously, through the last time when we had this, this, this kind of worldwide debate with my uh, racing colleagues, at that point in the UK, we had a nationwide um, TV campaign for Persia, yeah. where the outline was, it has to be said, a rather alluring female voice um, saying Peugeot. Now, I think that's the first thing I'd say. So we've got it from literally the opposite of horse's mouth and i don't mean the opposite of what's a horse you know what i meant anyway right so second point we have per and poo and then with mcnish it's per so you guys are just thoroughly confused but but you've but you've also confused um the pronunciation that most british people would make with uh john hindoff who doesn't come from um the part of britain where we teach people properly how to talk he speaks it comes to the northeast and that's my phone ringing that's joe bradley and that's very offensive indeed joe thank you very much for that um but uh, it's yeah the Renault thing and the peugeot thing oddly came together over a cup of coffee in a race truck at doddington park yesterday why oh. because while i was there I was posting a story on Delhi Sports Car, uh, which is a retelling of a tale by Charles Dressing um, of the shock results at Sebring in 1983. And one of the little throwaway things that uh, Chuck Dressing actually put into that piece was a picture of a Renault 12. If you don't know what a Renault 12 is, um, 
it's a shitbox, is what it is. And that raced at the Sebring 12 Hours in the GTU class, I think it was. The person who was looking over my shoulder and taking interest in that, and it's a story I'll be telling in the next week or so on Daily Sportscar, so apologies I won't complete it now, is the man who has just bought the first Peugeot 90X to be in private hands. And that car may very well race again. Uh, so that is a 2011 car. In fact, the car that finished either third or fourth at the Le Mans 24 Hours, that car has been sold. The third of the uh, the collection of, Por- uh, of Peugeot, seven of which were brought into private ownership and have now been sold on, one of which is racing in the States. And indeed, last weekend, won um, at Sebring, double win in the Masters Insurance Legends races. And in fact, I think I'm right. What's the date today? Uh, it is it is today is the 10th anniversary of that very same car and it is that car chassis nine winning for orica at sebring so a week ago almost 10 years the day it won again at the same track how beautiful well isn't that, isn't that a great thing that is i think so I that's should the ask. answer the answer is the answer is there is there is a possibility of further um, very high level uh, LMH uh, competition. Uh, it's not. We're not done yet. It is not a closed book. I think is what I'd say there. Well, I love the fact that we just answered a single question in <laughs> a little over ten minutes. So hey, but blame me for that one. Uh, Sean has a follow up with Aston leaving GTE yep. Pro unless something changes. I assume that eventually Aston Martin's privateer cars will disappear from GTE Am. Do you think we will have to wait until Lance Stroll decides he's had enough of F1 and wants to win Le Mans to see it works? AMR team return uh, to Weck and Lasarth. Uh, great question. In fact, yesterday I got one of the answers to another last question, which is where are this year's um, GTE AM car? Where have they come from? They're not X Factory cars. I found the genesis of one of them it is a converted ex-british gt gt3 car that will be one of the cars uh, in the wec uh, this season that car uh, with tf sport um that same question kate has come up more than once might we see the the regular aston martin racing um commercial plan of basically getting a wealthy owner to invest in in helping to pay for the design, the build of those cars, take ownership of those cars, and then the provenance is put on by a factory team. There's no immediate sign that that's an immediate prospect. I would not be remotely surprised if somebody had presented somebody with the business case for doing exactly that. It would be, I think, such a shame that after the fantastic history we've had from Aston Martin Racing for much of the last two decades, uh, for at the point at which sports car racing, insurance racing is moving back to the forefront, that they were not represented uh, at the sharp end. So the answer at the moment is not aware there is a live plan today. Uh, it would not be a major surprise at all if someone saw the business case for doing that. But if they did, it's highly unlikely to be coming from the coffers of Aston Martin. Moving on to Daniel Summersdale. I want Glickenhaus to do well, but their social media output is really off-putting. Okay. That's P-U-T-T-I-N-G, not P-U-D-D-I-N-G. Uh, that might have been a diet joke about their car. I don't understand. Uh, the car doesn't feature on the Lamar poster, but neither does the majority of the other teams. 
having no finalized livery and an absence of coin going to the ACO coffers may be factors in that. We have a second related item here from Chris Mock. says on the 24 Le Mans poster, Revolt. It's awkward. I'll be not surprising that the ACO does this again and again. Had they picked two LMHs on the poster instead of one LMH and one grandfathered LMP1, would have made much more sense in terms of promoting the new class. Yeah. Look, I think the answer is the answer here is uh, it's got it's multifaceted. I'll try and run through it really quickly. Number one, I don't know, but in the past, at times, uh, those the people represented on those posters have paid for it. Uh, at times, I'm not sure that's the case in 2021, uh, but that at times that would be the case that some of the people who've been on those posters, the posters for the drivers' parade, uh, traditionally I know absolutely has been something where. Uh, at times, even privateer teams have paid to be the featured car on that. Um, that said, it is the first year of a brave new world. Um, whether or not that's to do with confidence of exactly where those cars are going to be, I couldn't honestly tell you because I've not had the conversation. There is a level at which I would suggest that not having representatives from all three manufacturers that will be in the top class on the poster, but having two of the three is perhaps a little tone deaf. Uh, I don't think it's the smartest move from the ACO to do that. It's rather a shame that that poster has been issued now for a race that's not taking place until September. And should we have got to the point where the cars are racing and potentially competitive against each other, maybe they'd think again about those designs. But we are where where we are, as they say. Um, do I share anybody's particular irritation at it? No. There's a, an element which a very large part of my psyche couldn't give a tuppenny stuff. But were I Jim Glickenhouse, I might well be slightly irritated by this. Um, do I agree with Jim's tone in response to it? I, I genuinely don't. Uh, I think, you know, Jim, Jim is, is a character. And the, the thing with characters is you have to accept with characters that they have extremes. Extreme number one is Jim's uh, predilection for spending his money on things we all find extremely entertaining um, and utterly beautiful, the cars. At the other end of that, um, Jim has opinions. Jim likes to express those opinions. Jim has realized he can express those opinions directly to you, the watching and listening public by the medium of social media. And at times that is going to wind people up the wrong way. I would say this right now. Let's all, because uh, we, we had the similar thing around um, some of the statements that, that were made in the immediate aftermath of the shunts for the car at Valenunia. Let's all just get our lids back on a bit here and let's let this little team do the really tough stuff of getting this car tested, developed, homologated, and get to racing. And I hope when we get there, what we're going to see is a car running fast, running reliably, that those that like that sort of thing can get behind it and we can stop being obsessed by the minutiae and get on with something that a lot of us have not been able to do for an awfully long time, which is to get trackside, see, hear, and smell these glorious cars and, and let's go racing. It was, I have to tell you, MP, a glorious thing to be at Donington Park yesterday for an historic race test day. I was there to um, interview a couple of people um, to do with historic racing and the new owner of this Peugeot amongst them. 
And what a glorious thing it was to do exactly those things. It was to see the cars, to hear the cars, historic racing cars on an unrestricted uh, test day. And uh, the sight, sounds and smells was just absolutely glorious. It was a fabulous, fabulous thing. I hope many, many more of you get the opportunity to do it very soon. And I know the uh, the levels of patience with a whole lot of things are affected by your inability to do so. And I'm sure that's uh, a part of why the tone of some of the debate we're getting on social media about a range of things at the moment is not what any of us would choose, I think. Let's let him get on with it. Let's let him have his um, his, his, his score the points he wants to score with the, the rule makers and deal with the responses he gets in his own way. Because at the end of the day, here's the thing, boys and girls, it's his money. It is what it is. Uh, let's go. Let's stay Glickenhouse with Adam Farrell. Mm-hmm. Any idea, Graham? Would you happen to know the significance of their choosing number 708 and 709 for their hot it's rods? It's the I think it's the build numbers. I think it's the build numbers of the race cars from memory. Um, I think that's what it is. Uh, I, I could check it with Jim, but I'm pretty certain it's the build numbers at Podium Engineering who build all of Jim's race cars. So 708 and 709. And happily for Jim, the change in the regulations for the numbers has come at a very good time for him. Uh, because you can now choose any, anything up to numbers triple nine, and you can choose the font as well. And you choose what numbers you want, and if anybody wants to claim the same numbers, somebody has to pay for it. Uh, but in this instance, nobody's, oddly enough, claimed number 708, 709, so he gets what he wants, and he gets it for free. Uh, so good luck to him. Well, I'm going to file 708 and 709, and then uh, I <laughs> will propose an arm wrestling match between Jim and I, of which I'm confident I'll win. So I don't know what I'm going to do with the number plates, though, but hey. Uh, Let's see. Would not be an episode without some Right Turn Lover content. If LMDH would be allowed in ELMS in the Asian Le Mans series, wouldn't that Mm -hmm. diminish the appeal of LMP2 as their current top class? And I have to admit, thought about this as well, and I fully agree with Right Turn Lover here. I think if you start introducing the big new top cars into the non-top categories or championships, mm-hmm. uh, I think you do bad things to them. But do you think, I think they that do bad things to they, them? I think it's going to come down to where the LMP2 market is, and in particular where the teams that are currently in the LMP2 market are. There's little doubt that the vast majority of those teams are eyeing with you know, green-eyed, jealous impossibility, the possibility of LMDH. And I think you can only really make that call. I don't disagree with that premise at all, that um, that, that does things to LMP2. The, the point, I guess, is this. If the market frees up to the point, and the interest of the market frees up to the point where the vast majority of the high-quality end of the LMP2 market moves to LMDH, then what do you do? Uh, certainly one of the, the ideas that I've, I've heard put to me by someone with, with who is not without influence in that marketplace is that perhaps the answer might be that you have private teams only, maybe even pro-am crude uh, LMDHs uh, in one or other or both of those continental championships. I think it's a little too early to make the call. I think... Um, we're not really going to know until we get pretty close to 2023 just exactly where that marketplace is going to be. Remember, it is a distinct financial uptick from LMP2. 
but th- I think there are some concerns about the viability of the depth of LMP2 when we get into 23 and 24, um, if we get to the stage that the majority of those teams are either running or trying to run uh, the car in the top class, where does that then leave, you know, a championship, the LMS this, this year, you know, way into double figures for LMP2s. If you lose half that field because they're trying to get into LMDH and by attachment the WEC at that point, where does it leave your continental championships? Where does it leave your supporting class? Where does it leave your pyramid? So we're going to have to make some smart moves about that pyramid hypercar with lmh lmdh lmp2 with new chassis remember to come at the moment uh, predicted to be 2024 and then lmp3 um without at the moment the certainty of a gt pro of whatever hue um beyond it and then gt am uh, in some way shape or form there's a lot of work still to do to kind of just put the reinforcement the rebar if you like around the the pyramid that's been very effective to this point of getting teams to a certain point and that point by the way i would argue has been to lmp2 but not many if any going much further beyond that okay where else are we going to wander here uh drew wetzel says thanks to both of you for this great podcast well i appreciate your poor judgment drew Instead of asking who <laughs> might be coming to LMH and LMDH, can you tell me, Graham, who's confirmed they will not be coming to either category? Who can we rule out? Uh, well, Master is the one that uh, so far has absolutely ruled out that they're, they're not coming. So Master has said they're definitely not doing it, um, which was, I think, a source of sadness to everybody uh, the, because it's always been one of those brands that when they've done it it's always been entertaining it's always been a bit of a crowd pleaser so Mazda are one of those brands that we think uh has counted that out rolls royce um, i think they've counted they've it definitely out said they're not yes yeah they couldn't put the umbrellas in the doors that was the problem um <laughs> the other one that i would suggest to you that i think is highly unlikely at this point is lexus I think they've they've looked at it more than once, MP. What 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 could you add to that one? I think Lexus at this stage, I think we can count them out of LMDH. Yes, that's the one big takeaway on that class from my long interview with Toyota Racing Development boss Dave Wilson that went up, mm-hmm. I don't know, Monday or Tuesday or whatever on Racer. They're all in with GT3-based racing for the future, not discounting... Mm-hmm the possibility of LMDH, but it is certainly nowhere near on their horizon. They will be moving to a new GT3-based production-infused model, something that uh, he said, unlike the current RCF GT3, obviously built upon their RCF model, that had no racing considerations built into it uh, when it was being... Uh, thought of and then heading to the production line which led to multiple developments and redevelopments to get it to a state of competitiveness in gt3 he said the new car coming and he didn't name what it was or when it was coming but he did say what's coming that will replace the rcf really truly does have a lot of racing ideas infused into it that will make uh convert or creating a gt3 version much easier so 
we know that's coming in the next couple of years. I'd say sooner than later, and I would expect them to have another year or two at least of running that car and hopefully finding success and sales with it uh, before they would consider doing prototypes. Yeah, I mean, beyond that, in terms of public statements from major brands, very little, but I wouldn't expect that to be the case uh, in any case. But uh, I think we, we are still expecting across LMH and Hypercar there to be still a number of other brands that will emerge in the next 12 months or so. And we're all very impatient indeed to find out who that might be. Uh, but there are other, remember, other possibilities coming along. We do have new gt3 rules uh coming forward in imsa and new cars coming along too there's going to be uh some excitement i'm sure to come there beyond the introduction of the converged class in the wec and lmdh and imsa you've then got 2024 and hydrogen with the kind of more spec um uh chassis and uh, the the powertrain if you like but uh, with at least some technological freedom and I expect we're going to see a couple of brands into that. Uh, I'll say no more than that. Uh, I've got a fair idea who one of those brands is going to be and a half an idea who another of them might be. But we're going to see more brands coming into top-class racing. And at that point, there's all sorts of options that emerge uh, in terms of the, the shape of sports car racing worldwide. Uh, it's good news that we've got to the point we've got so far with convergence. There is some very, very heavy lifting to go to the next stage without a shadow of a doubt. But uh, in terms of people who counted themselves out, fewer people have counted themselves out than have counted themselves in at this point. You grab one or two more, Graham, then uh, let's close the show with some general and fun lump together. I'm going to go with uh, Joachim Bernardson. He says, hey, guys. Do you think the new hypercars will meet the target of a three-minute, 30-second lap time at Le Mans? Will they be faster? About top speeds on the Mulsanne, I'll throw in, could they be slower? Mm -hmm. Uh, The answer, I think, will be, yes, they will make those targets. Um, Again, I'm talking to people within each of the projects that uh, we've got out there at the moment. I think there's some really, really interesting talking points emerging from uh, what there's a fantastic phrase that's been a word that's been used stratification of the uh, of the various solutions and LMP2 at the moment. There are some big big talking points that are being discussed right now, very very actively uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. So can they make the performance levels certainly at the top end? They absolutely can. And my suggestion to you is that should they need to find more performance, that would not be too much of a stretch. Bearing in mind, you've got the grandfathered P1 car. They're, they're taking performance out of that package. Um, so there's there's all sorts of ways in which they could actually do it. Top speeds at Le Mans. It's an interesting one, isn't it? One of the issues I think they're finding with slowing down the LMP2s is you can reduce the power, but the reality is they are very slippery cars indeed. Uh, I don't think it was by accident, by the way, that um, the... Uh, A480 Alpine, that grandfathered LMP1 car, that they've chosen the low drag downforce uh, body kit as their one body kit for that car coming into 2021. Why? Because, of course, they're going to prioritize Le Mans. And that car is going to be very rapid indeed in a straight line. Um, So uh, 
I think the, the answer to all of this is there's an awful lot of unknowns. Uh, I think one of the most interesting places to be on the planet in motorsport is going to be at the prologue test at Spa uh, when we get to see these cars running uh, publicly back to back for the first time. And if there's problems, uh, that's where you want to be looking for the pile of sandbags because uh, there's going to be a lot to play for at Le Mans this year. Okay. Let's see where else we wander. Matthew License sent in two. I'll take one of them for now. Matthew says, uh, well, we'll just stay here. Uh, and you've already got into it a little bit. But with the Alpine being presented this week in Le Mans spec, does this mean they have to run the low downforce package yep. all season? rather than switching between high and low like Rebellion did last year. Yeah, they, they, one of the rules, one of the cost reduction things is that in uh, the Le Mans hypercar, the hypercar uh, rule uh, set is there is one body kit. That's it. You've got to run that compromise. And the way that most people are compromising is they're going to run the Le Mans kit or they're going to run something that works well at Le Mans. That is the biggest race of the season. Remember, in particular, this is a very short season in the WEC. So the compromise is less, if you like, in terms of the number of races than it would be for future years. But then add into that, this is a multi-year homologation. Um, Alpine, in this instance, they've got one shot at this. That At the moment, there doesn't appear very much likely that they're going to be uh, continuing with a grandfathered LMP1 car beyond uh, 2021. The reality is the championship doesn't need it because next year we get Peugeot. Uh, so the challenge then will be to their market rivals, Renault. Well, if you want to come back, come back with a new car like Peugeot have. Okay, let's see. I wonder if we move uh, on, and if not, let's or if move so, on a bit. where do let's we move. go? Uh, one, the one thing I'll, I'll add there, uh, Matthew also says any news on whether Carl Army will be on the WC calendar next year, 22. He was very excited to see more racing there. So was I. Very sad that uh, we were robbed of going to South Africa by uh, COVID-19. I hope it comes back, and I hope some of the other races do uh, too, Matthew. But um, we, we don't really have an indication at the moment, and it's rather too early. I mean, still... Right now, you know, I, I hesitate to pick up the phone to some of my friends and colleagues in some of the racing organizations around Europe. It is hell at the moment trying to get calendars together for this year, let alone predicting what's going to happen uh, in the future. Right now, it is a very tough time still to be trying to organize uh, any kind of event or getting people from one place to another across national borders. So uh, good luck to all of them if you're listening, guys. We're with you. Um, you know, uh, we've got a lot of changes still to come. Um, you're getting choked you're up to... about it too. I love it. Yeah, it's likely there. Well, speaking of getting choked up, oh, no. we're going to move to, yeah, we're going to move to her general. And it has been a really sad week, MP. Um, We've Let me read Chris this. Yeah, yeah, go, ahead. go on so, for it. Go well, for I was it. just going to say we we've had some, uh, yeah, we've had some losses for sure to deal with, um, and so I would say the most recent is the one that seems to have struck a number of people very hard in our world of sports car racing, as it should. A uh, couple of folks uh, weighing in on this, and I'm going to leave them with you because I admittedly just have. Uh, far and remote memories, none of them having met other person. Uh, Christopher Matthews says, uh, what are your memories of uh, Sabine Schmitz? Anne Murray Walker, 
Chris Ward says, can you tell us your favorite Sabine Schmidt story? Chad Randall says, we've lost three legends this week. Do you have any stories about Sabine, Manfred Kramer, or Murray, uh, Murray Walker? And then James Counter closes by saying, do you think the ring should have a corner named after Sabine? I think that's an obvious one. I mean, I, I think like that, if, that, <laughs> if they don't name it Sabine's Nurburgring, uh, just forget a yep. corner, rename the whole thing. But yeah, I think that will happen Sab- for sure, for sure, James. Sabine S. Sabine S. That'll do it. The Sabine S's, that would be just exactly it for me. Uh, right, so where do we start? Um, let's not forget uh, Manfred Kramer. That's the, the end of a fantastic family story um, in sports car racing. And, you know, we lost Erin Kramer back in 2006. And the younger brother passes now. And, and that's the end of one hell of an era. And one of only two teams, the Kramer Racing Squad, that as private concerns won both Le Mans and the Daytona 24 Hours. That's an extraordinary achievement. And that was very sad news to get that very same day as the the, uh, the passing of Sabine Schmidt. So let's deal with Murray next. Um, I was privileged to meet him a couple of times, uh, very much in his later years. And I'm very happy to say there was absolutely nothing disappointing about him whatsoever. What a thoroughly lovely and charming man he was. Um, was clearly very aware of the the uh, the the love and affection that motorsport fans had for him. And I, I, I'm not going to say he played to that. That that implies that there was an elective set of behaviours. He was just a very nice man that loved motorsport. Um, my memories of him. Or as a fan, as with most of you listening into this, uh, listening and watching uh, a, an array in the UK of motorsport. It wasn't just Formula One. It was rallycross. It was British touring cars in its heydays and the super touring days. And there's so many, you know, TV-based memories of just... <sighs> I, he was my sort of commentator. He was... He was trying to be informative at all times but he was having fun with it and yes he made those mistakes but that was just part of the character that was about trying to get the information out in a way in which you know showed his enthusiasm and I adored him I just thought he was a fantastic televisual experience and you know are there better more factually accurate uh, commentators yeah and there's some boring ones as well. He was never, ever boring. And that's the thing. If there's, if there's something that he brought into my life, my professional life later, was you've got to enjoy what you do if you're, if you're trying to um, relay enthusiasm to a mass audience. And thank you, Murray Walker, for that, because you did teach us some lessons about the way in which you know, you can describe a sport that is not all that accessible uh, in a way that's entertaining to an audience that perhaps doesn't know as much as you do. And I, I thank him for that because that's something he, he put into my life. That was that. Was that. Sabine. I didn't know Sabine well, met her often. Um, almost always at the Nürburgring. I think all bar one of the meetings I had with Sabine was at the Nürburgring. I did meet her once at the Rolex 24 Hours. My favourite story about Sabine has absolutely nothing to do with race cars. Um, Many of you that know about Sabine's background will know that she comes from a family of hoteliers. 
the family hotel was um, above the uh, Piston Club, the, 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 the infamous restaurants in uh, Nürburgring, the uh, fantastic state, steak on a, on a rock restaurant that uh, you can go to at the Nürburgring. And she ran a couple of restaurants with her family and indeed with her husband when she when she was married uh, for the first time in the late 90s, in the period when Sabine Rack, she won the Nürburgring 24 hours twice. And she ran a hotel with her family to the end. And the hotel that Sabine ran uh, was in a village called Barweiler. Um, and it was a Western-themed um, uh, – hello, is that Rocky? That's Rocky. Uh, he Western, just reached out and West, dug his claws West, into my stomach. Thanks, pal. Ouch. Uh, a Western-themed uh, – yes, a Western-themed um, uh, hotel, which uh, on one particular occasion, I think it may have been the Nürburgring 24 Hours, and we couldn't get into the regular hotel – in Barvala that I was staying at that time. Actually, no, it wasn't. It was a WC week. That It was definitely a WC week uh, because I was uh, put into the, the regular hotel by TV. I couldn't get my DSC guys into the same one, looked for something closer, found this place, had no idea at that point it was uh, the uh, Schmitz family uh, place. And for what other reason, we arrived in Barvala that evening heroically late to check into this hotel so i took the guys I, it was my car we'd taken the dsc fun bus um took i think two or three of the guys to this place way gone midnight walked in uh, almost literally through the kind of you know the saloon doors type thing into this open plan uh, ground floor which was almost completely a bar and literally everybody in that room was completely hammered wow um, and behind the bar uh, was blindingly obvious to anybody that uh, you know has a TV in the house was Sabine and her sister. And I will remember to my diet, she was utterly charming, um, checked us in. And I will remember to my dying day, the look of Peter Pedro May, one of DSC's photographers, the look on his face as this television and motorsport icon, double Nürburgring 24 Hours winner overall. Um, the queen of the Nürburgring showed him to his room. Uh, the look on his face was an absolute picture. She was lovely. She was amazing. She was properly fast. And the only time you ever saw her not smiling was when she was being serious about her racing and something was needing her immediate attention. Um, a brave fight, well fought unfortunately lost uh she was one of the good goodens she genuinely was and you know we should all mourn her loss particularly in an era now mp where we are thinking more towards the opportunities for women in motorsport they're coming they're coming slowly um that you know we're, we're trying to move from a period of where it's it's kind of gesture politics to a period where just you know uh, women can uh, to expect the same opportunities. She took the opportunities, she ran with them, and she won in an era where that wasn't as likely as it is nowadays. And we should all remember that. And rest in peace, Sabine. Rest easy now. That was one hell of a fight. Hmm. Let's see. I'm trying to pick one or two more for general before we grab one or two from fun and say farewell. 
George Allegretz uh, says, guys, there been any discussion about using green fuels between uh, those being developed by Porsche, Audi, and uh, Total as an alternative to, say, uh, hydrogen or electrified powertrain seems like a way to go carbon neutral or negative while maintaining the current internal combustion engine infrastructure. Uh, have you heard anything heard it, on that we've end? Heard it before. Not not a lot. I mean, we've had obviously ethanol has been uh, done the rounds. Um, we've we, we, they're, they're certainly not in things like prototype racing. I think they're very focused on the hydrogen electric drive is the next big thing, without a shadow of a doubt. And uh, you know, that's where the total investment in ACO rules racing is going, as far as alternative fuels is concerned. We do see um, some efforts still at the Nürburgring 24 hours with a variety of you know, whether it's biodiesel whether it's uh, it's uh, it's um lpg we've had cars running there we've had hydrogen fueled cars uh, running there before now so um it's as my siri decides it's going to listen to what i'm going to say for whatever reason um but i don't see immediately there being a prospect of anything coming out of the woodwork and i would it, i would Include there, I don't see an immediate prospect of anything outside the hydrogen realm in Garage 56 either. I wouldn't be remotely surprised if we saw something emerging even maybe for 2023 as a Garage 56 car on the hydrogen front. That wouldn't be a surprise at all um, ahead of 2024 when the new regulations come in. But uh, no, uh, it's at the moment just not there, I don't think. And we come back to, you know, a, a segment from last week's show, which thank you very much, by the way, for a couple of people who said some very nice things about our explanation of Garage 56, uh, is that it's sort of the wrong time right now for those big OEM budgets to be looking in that direction. Mm. And it's also the wrong time right now for the more entrepreneurial sides of the industry to be attracting uh, the big bucks they'd require to get a race car together in pretty short order. So if it came, it would be a very big uh, and welcome surprise. But I think the answer is we're probably some years away from that. Just looking to see if anything piques my interest before we move on, possibly, um, uh, you I, know, I, go ahead. Can I answer one here? Daniel Summerskill. Yeah, that's what I was going to pick to close. Ah, so uh, the news that former Audi and Corvette racing driver Marcel Fesler is retiring at the age of 44 with three Le Mans wins, WC title, multiple DTM race race wins, but hashtag me personally seems to get less recognition than drivers with similar records. Do you want a quick word about Marcel from the kind of Corvette side first before I give you kind of my side? I spoke to Marcel at length yesterday, by the way, um, and I've not had the time yet to write up the interview. But what what, what from, from your end, MP? Not so much surprised, Daniel. If anything, I've, I've seen a couple of questions like this posed. Hey, he's only 44 and he's retiring? That's... <laughs> It's a pretty amazing statement of how far the sport has come in recent years where, you know, Ollie Gavin, I mean, he's granted 57, but uh, nonetheless, you know, Ollie stepping back from full-time racing, uh, Alan McNish, early-ish 40s, uh, when he stepped away, Tom Christensen, similar. The thought of someone who looks so young, like Marcel, Marcel stopping at 44, I think that's actually pretty fascinating, Graham, to consider that, yes, indeed, he looks like he could go for another five or ten years. 
but he decided at what we might say feels like somewhat of a younger age that he is uh, moving on to next stages. So that's the first thing that jumped out. 44 is not old for a driver to Mm -hmm. decide they've had enough. Uh, Just we've seen many instances of drivers push beyond 45 uh, recently. Mm -hmm. On the Corvette side, I mean, even the Audi side a little bit, Marcel, I always think of as a perfect complementary driver in a factory lineup. He is someone who's going to match or come super close to the maybe any superstars that he might be in a car with. But I struggle, Graham, to recall a series of epic Marcel Fessler uh audi or corvette stints i'm not saying he's never had them i'm just saying whereas we might think of an antonio garcia as a oh my gosh (laughs) i mean that guy that guy does superhuman things seemingly uh, at least once per race i just don't have the same anything close to the same frequency of memories of marcel jumping out in that oh my god did you see the pass that he made for the win or the crazy fight back drive over and over and over again. I just think of him as the perfect complementary member of a strong trio without being the breakout driver in that trio on a regular basis. And that's not necessarily a, a negative. Very few drivers ascend to that level of, ooh, when they're in the car, fireworks stop what you're doing and watch if marcel wasn't that guy the majority of the time that's still not a bad thing mm-hmm. well okay i could add one standout drive and it was one we discussed yesterday um and that was the 2007 spa 24 hours it was indeed in a corvette uh corvette's c6r gt1 car a very wet race that year and he Absolutely, Sean. Um, uh, To give you an idea of the level of dominance in those conditions, think J.J. Leto 1995 at Le Mans. It seemed to me that every opportunity they put him back in the car, and no doubt to me, and I did ask him the straight question, was that the, the moment that actually things changed and people started to... Uh, to look in a different way at Marcel Fesler. And, and it was that point that things started to happen with Corvette and with Audi. And it was, that was the race that made the difference. And I, I don't think you're wrong. I think Marcel is a very modest man. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll wait for the interview to kind of give some details of the things he's going to be doing with his time uh, moving forward. But I will tell you this, they are modest and they suit the character of the man. Um, he's another thing. Uh, which I hold dear, which is a family man. He has four daughters. God bless your son, four daughters. You've got some trouble coming there. But um, but he, um, oddly enough, MP, he's one of my favourite people in the paddock to talk to. Uh, and why? Because he's got life away from motorsport. Yeah. And I think that's the point here. That's why now, that's why he's made those de- the decisions he's made. He was very clear that he knew that the last contract he signed with Corvette would be the last. He knew that. He's known that for some little time. Um, he has some fantastic memories of some fantastic times. And we talked in depth about that astonishing trio of himself, uh, Benoit Trillier, 
and uh, and Andre Lotterer, and uh, I'll, I'll you know read it in his own words, but I'm very happy to re- record that it was as good a friendship, a three-way friendship, as it looked from the outside, a very special uh, combination. Uh, I'll add this, which is my very favourite memory of Marcel. Um, in the long history that I now have with the FI World Insurance Championship, there were a few standout moments, one of which was the one time I ever... It's actually one of two occasions I ever called the podium for the WEC. The second time, by the way, was Super Sebring in the absolutely heaving rain. Uh, So I called that podium. But the first time I did it was Shanghai. And it was the day that the three of them won the World Championship. Toto won the race. Uh, Rather famously, the flags went to the top of the flagpole, then fell off. Uh, But it was a very private moment with Marcel um, when he came to the back of that podium and knew he'd won the world championship and the the joy that that moment brought was a joy to behold and is one of my favorite motorsport memories uh, a truly lovely man um, and I'm happy to say you'll you'll hear more about it in the next few uh, next uh, next few days on daily sports car um, that he will remain in motorsport in our area of motorsports in the peripheries of our area of motorsport and I will be seen I'm sure trackside at some point but uh, thanks for the question because I would have hated for his departure from the top tier of the scene to have been forgotten um, by the weekend sports cars and thanks very much for asking the question because it's been a delight to answer it <laughs> Uh, and I've just found I've logged myself out, so you might want to Good. pick a question as, as I, I you log should. myself back in. Yeah, and I'll just throw in, I think of Marcel as just a classic race car driver, workmanlike, oh, yeah. not a big personality. You're not going to see TikToks from him dressing up as uh, Rodney Dust Storm or whatever else. Uh, just a old school race car driver. I'm here to race. I love it. It's my profession. All those things that we know, as you mentioned, is a family has many interests outside of motor racing, a well-balanced human being and came in, did his job, did it exceedingly well, achieved some amazing success and checked out when his time was over. I massively respect that. Not someone who, chose to hang on longer than uh his talent really allowed not someone who's desperate and worked down the ladder that's another thing again these are all things that i appreciate about marcel of you go from factory program to factory program for those who start to cling instead of say i've had my fill i've achieved all that i wanted let me move into the next phase of my career or life you then start to see those folks who cling move to, all right, well, so you're, oh, you're going to the privateer team in the factory class. Okay, cool. Okay, now you're in the pro-am class. Okay, now you're the, the pro there. And, oh, you're popping up here and there. Not belittling those who wander down that path and, you know, keep moving. You see them at the highest level, and by the end of their journey, they're now racing in the lowest class. Uh, that's a necessity for some would just say, I'm really happy to see that Marcel has said, you know what, going out on my terms, going out on top, you could say, right. 
Um, good for him. Really, really happy for him in that regard. Uh, we're going to go to fun, and then we're going to go enjoy the rest of our days. We're at about a little over an hour and a half here, Graham. Usually trying to do about okay. 90 minutes. Uh, Jerry Suddeth, our pal Jerry Suddeth, says, what is your favorite Sebring memory? Oof. I got punched by Richard Leeds. Um, Ooh, tell us about that one. Yeah. Uh, that was a, it was, I think that was the first race for the WC it was the infamous race. And, uh, Richard, who I love dearly, um, came in having set pole as the GTM. I think he set pole in GTM. And as he came in to pull his leg, I said, there you go. Big hand here for the fastest amateur guy in the field. And I got a playful punch in the gut from Richard. Um, <laughs> and it was a playful punch in the gut. Um, favorite Sebring memories. We've had, we have fun at Sebring. We, we, we really do. It's very hard work, um, the Sebring week. But uh, we do have fun. I'm trying to recall a good one. I do remember. I'm trying to think who it was. It was someone sort of well-known. And I was uh, working the kind of hot pit um, at Sebring collecting comment. This would have been all oh, about 10 years ago, wearing what was then the fire suit that fitted, which was an ex-PK sports fire suit from Piers Maserati. And the guy clearly thought I was Piers Maserati. Now, if you ever met Piers, you would know that he and I do not look alike. Um in any way, shape, or form. That was quite fun, trying to explain to him, as the cars roared by at you know ridiculous speeds and with ridiculous volume, that I wasn't indeed the man branded by his own teammates and the guys at Delhi Sports Car as the winner from Pinner. Um, now a near neighbour of mine, oddly enough, Piers. Um, so there was that one. Uh, there was the wine tasting at the racers group, which... I think everybody would be fair to say left being polite and was less polite when they'd left about what we'd been just tasted. And then there was the final thing, which is dinner at Vanessa's. Those that uh, have slightly longer memories and certainly anybody to, uh, in the, uh, the IMSA paddock will know Vanessa Vicart and her husband, Larry, and uh, were long part of the uh, ALMS paddock. Uh, on the hospitality front, now kind of semi-retired, Vanessa, and we're having a, a very agreeable um, dinner with, is it Jack Gardner, uh, MP, that was at uh, Miller Motorsport Park? Is that right? Uh, John Gardner. John Gardner. John. I uh, having a long chat with John Gardner. And at th- this point, there was a, a screech and a crash, and through the side wall of the awning appears a very confused... John Brooks uh, in his golf cart. <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, it was. It could have been a lot worse. Um, it got a lot worse for John once Vanessa got older. But I can tell you that for nothing. But um, that 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 moment, yes, uh, and everything to do with the conversation that led up to that one. It was. Uh, it is one of my favourite places to go racing, despite itself. Sebring is not what you might call the Monte Carlo of. Um, of Florida, but we always, always had fun. Uh, there's something about race meetings where you work truly hard and truly long hours where 
it, it is enormous fun. The camaraderie is the big part of it, but uh, just the throwaway moments. Oh, that and um, who was it who turned up one time in a bright yellow convertible Chrysler Pronto Cruiser? Um, looking like the cast out of Dumb and Dumber. Um, it was one of our photographic friends, and they were not allowed to forget that for a very long time. Uh, what about you, MP? Sebring, memories? I'll just stick to one. Prior to becoming a dirty, dirty journalist, uh, <gasps> my first interactions at Sebring, uh, the 12 hours of Sebring, involved being race engineer, team manager type stuff uh, mm-hmm. in the series formerly known as uh, SCCA World Challenge. Also, some of the support series, like back in the day, some open wheel cars would be part of the calendar. Uh, uh, star Mazdas and such kind of middle of the road to indie tier and such. So, uh, for me more, and I forget what years, whether it was, uh, 2004, five, six, something in that range was really there only on the team side, not the media side. And as a result of having a hard card for world challenge or those classes or whatever else, it meant that our racing was done by friday and hey i'm not gonna fly home till sunday so it was really cool coming in as just a fan and a fan with a camera i didn't have all the gear that i have today but i got to spend my first couple of 12 hour races as a guy with pretty darn good access not couldn't get everywhere of course didn't have a media vest and couldn't get over the fence to here and there but i could get into a couple of places um and just wandered around for 12 hours and it was all walking, no golf cart or anything like that. But I just got to be a fan, get, could get onto pit lane. So would wander down to pit lane and, you know, see some pit stops and take some photos of that, uh, infield green park got to just be one of those roaming nutters for sure. And that's something that I just love Jerry. So while we are much busier, on the the media side than I ever was on the engineering cars or managing cars side don't have nearly as much free time to do a lot of the fun things that I did uh, originally those are pretty magical times magical memories of great cars yep. teams all those things but really just being a guy like everyone else hey I got a day I can do whatever I want and I've got pretty good access let's go do it so a lot of rich memories in there then after that it's just a lot of friends and fun and uh whether it's you and the dsc gang whether it's sam collins back when he was a a dirty journalist like us uh in race with race car engineering um walter mellison um and such just a lot of good friends a lot of fun um it's that stuff that we tend to remember. I would say most of us more than anything. Uh, let's go to a guy in a grumpy bear suit as we wind down, take mm. his, and then why don't you pick the final question? Why don't we go with okay. his? Uh, das Ruslar says, I saw something get asked on a non-motorsports podcast I listened to. It says, in all your travels, which famous or noteworthy regional food item, like Philly cheesesteak <laughs> or Chicago pizza, was the most overhyped? disappointing or underwhelming want me to go because i think i might have some blasphemy to uncork here 
Go, go. Every year. Top one or two topics raised by those of us collectively, media, teams, drivers, whatever, about going to road America in Wisconsin is Mm. the bratwursts and the uh, casing, the meat-filled casings in a bun with whatever toppings and really the the regional sausage-based food products being screw you michelin and your five stars this is a michelin 20 star type thing <laughs> eh, uh, I, overhyped to the point of being disappointed now i need yep. to again this is an episode full of me feeling the need to clarify stuff i don't know why but just go with it they're really good they, they're fantastic but I can't say that when I go to Road America and have them, that they're unlike ones that I would have anywhere else where they just do a good job with their bratwursts or otherwise. So good, but I mean, I can go to a variety of pubs here in the greater San Francisco Bay Area and have something mm-hmm. that's just as good, if not possibly better. So maybe it's more a case of, since the Bay Area tends to be a little bit different than other places in the country, maybe a lot of the folks who go to Road America and just, oh my God, I'm going to fill myself with uh, <laughs> with the with these things. Maybe they just live in areas where you can't get good stuff. I just know that uh, for hashtag me personally, um, it was pretty much a non-event. Like, oh yeah, that's good, but uh, I really don't get what y'all are raving about. So that's me. That's my blasphemy. I cannot wait to get hate mail from John Ewert at uh, Road America. And uh, I know I will have to wear a disguise next time I appear there or fans will hurl uh, tubed meat at me. And to please don't think, carry that conversation any farther. I think the, the answer is anywhere that's that's got a fame or notoriety for any kind of food stuff, you are going to find a vast... Um, array of quality uh, available to you you just got to be kind of i think sensible about you don't, you don't just don't go for the cheap stuff because it's not going to be very good is the straight and honest answer um it, it's for me the 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 kind of the food experience in any area is finding somewhere where lots of people go um and particularly if you find where the local people go and it's likely to be pretty darn good and um, you know don't go for the cheapest but don't necessarily go for the most expensive either and things you know when it's kind of a bit more kind of home cooked if you like it's it's always for me a better experience i mean uh, i'll give you a for instance it was a guest house we stayed at for the red bull ring for several years which had a famously grumpy um barkeeper uh, and the first time we turned up there, it was another one where we turned up heroically late and we hadn't eaten and we were absolutely starving and we pile in through the front door, five, five or six of us with all the crap we tend to assemble uh, on a road trip and we're just desperate for a beer and some food and we're greeted with the grumpy, we have nothing, we have nothing. And uh, just as we were about to, uh, um, about, about to kind of give up for the night, all we have is beer and schnitzel. It's like, 
all we have is beer and schnitzel is like all we have is all the money in the world and all the women you might like uh, at that point and honestly it was just an absolute delight uh, schnitzel can be done very badly very badly indeed i have never in my life been to austria and had a bad schnitzel is the straight answer um <laughs> man I, i'm just I, telling I, you we are serving up the uh, out of context twisk twitter account with a lot of non sequiturs <laughs> here so from my um, tubed meat to uh, your uh schnitzel uh ravings yeah boy we're feeding yeah G- G- german pizza sometimes can leave something but that's not what it's famous for apart from pinocchio's pizza in adenau which if you don't know what pinocchio's pizza in adenau is you haven't lived it's about as big as a reasonably sized dining table for five and this is what they serve up for one but uh, i have to say i've not had that many occasions where it's been anything other than at least halfway decent certainly nothing that rings a bell as being particularly underwhelming i did think for a moment by the way you were going to talk about the red sausage again and i'm very glad that you didn't yeah we're not going to do that all right graham goodwin pick one final question to close and then take us home. One last one. And one we can actually, I think, both talk about here. Uh, who in your lifetime, says Stephen Gates, was the absolute quickest driver to sit in a sports car, show truly stunning pace? Hashtag me personally. It has to be Stefan Beloff. Uh, but Michael Schumacher comes close based on his sensational performances in 91. We outperformed the C291. I think I'm going to restrict this one, MP, to someone you saw do it personally. Because it would be really bizarre to say that about someone you did not. Why don't yeah. you go first? Because I think I just closed on the last topic. I, I I hate and loathe myself for doing this to myself. It's McNish. Um, and the thing I think about Alan was at the height of his powers, and the height of his powers lasted for a long time, you could more or less guarantee that yeah, that's where the release the sport the the Scotsman thing came from. That came, uh, in my memory, out of um, I think it was either Radio Le Mans, it could have been a WEC uh, broadcast where you just knew uh, he'd come out and there'd be a fight on his hands, and he'd come out and he'd give them that fight. Um, you know, uh, if if Alan McNish had been a foot and a half taller, he'd been a hell of a bar fighter. Um, but it was McNish and he, and he did it time and time again. Some of those astounding races where, um, you know, he get in the car with either a big gap to fight, uh, to, to, to kind of uh, pull back on or a fight to take him away from the field and in pretty even machinery, he'd do it. And for me, um, he didn't stay in that position for, for his entire career. He was always right up there. There were occasions on which it was Andre Lotterer in the Audi, occasions on which it could have been the likes of Frank Montani in the um, in the Peugeot, for instance, uh, but uh, or Ant Davidson at times as well. But it, it for me, the, the one that still right now is the guy, it, it, it's McNish. And it was, it was Alan for quite some time. But mercifully, he'll never hear this, and I'll never have to answer the question, so I'm your hero then, um, at some point in the future. 
well, that was a catastrophe of a choice, but you know, we're not going <laughs> to edit that out. Uh, <laughs> mainly based on your, your, who it is. Um, yeah, I will go with, I want to go with two, but, uh, I'll say Davy Jones stands out for the polls that he earned in a variety of Jaguars uh, here in Imsen GTP. I would probably, though, need to go with Jeff Brabham. He is somebody, having witnessed the man for many, many, many years, all of his championships in Imsa four in a row. Um, boy, that guy, as laid back as he is, and as much as he downplays his ability and just he's not a high energy guy. He's someone who it, there's such a, a great separation between the man inside and outside of the car. And just having watched the guy extract crazy speed, find the outer outer limits of potential with the various Nissan GTP cars that he drove where there's some additional esteem for him. I would say that this is during an era much like uh, the selection of Beloff, right? Obviously losing mm-hmm. Stefan in a, you know, died in an accident uh, during similar era, uh, same, same-ish type of prototypes. There were some very real potentials, Graham, for a Nissan GTP car to have component failure, tire failure, whatever it is, at many tracks on the IMSA calendar where safety, ha, what is that? And the potential for hurting oneself gravely stood out, and yet, and Jeff was not the only one. I'm not singling him out as if he was the only one. By no means. There are lots of crazy bastards doing similar things in GTP at the time, but he's just someone who really took this to new levels and then kept reaching and finding more and more and more and more. And I always just greatly appreciate him for the fact that while he is best known and remembered as the person with the longest IMSA winning streak at the time, the four consecutive GTP championships, I don't know if enough respect is put on his name for being so brutally and blindingly fast uh, without complication. Uh, So yeah, just, boy, mastery, just absolute mastery uh, of speed and getting everything out of those cars that he could. So uh, no different than Alan, no different than a Stefan, um, just maybe not regarded as such to the degree I feel that he should. So that's my answer. That's our final question. Take us home, my brother. It is. I most certainly will. And thank you again, everybody, for listening in uh, to what we dole out on a weekly basis, or sort of a weekly basis. Thanks in particular to those of you that continue to send in really interesting questions, and lots of them on a weekly basis. And as Marshall often says, if we didn't get to it, send it again. Uh, the more insulting the kind of the, uh, the, the retort that we've not answered it last time, the better. Uh, but for now, 
we're going to say uh, take our leave and say uh, good evening uh, from here in the UK. Good afternoon, I guess it is, from uh, where you are in the States there, MB. Looking forward to the Sebring 12 Hours that takes place tomorrow as we're recording this one. Thanks to Cooper Tyres, with thanks to the Justice Brothers, and with thanks to TorotoMotorsport.com. I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Marshall Pruitt. This has been the Weekend Sports Cars, part of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. We'll see you next week.